This has been a, an awesome series. I want to say a special word of thanks to my friend Bob Montz for sharing last week, both during our One Service Sunday, a sermon, and then also leading a, uh, a teaching time following that. And just give you a quick summary of where we've been up to this point in time. Week one, we dove in with the idea that there is an upside to doubt. And for some people, we say, how can you say there's a positive to doubt? Isn't doubt the opposite of faith? Not at all. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And some of the great heroes of the faith wrestled with doubt. They struggled with doubt. Moses struggled with doubt. Gideon struggled with doubt. Thomas, the disciple, struggled with doubt. John the Baptist. I mean, Mr. You know, Eat Locusts and Wild Honey and uh, Call People a Brood of Vipers, he struggled with doubt. So if you're there, if there's people in your world that are there, it's okay. It's not okay to stay there. And that's why we're doing this. Week two, we tried to look at how can we be sure if God really exists without really using the Bible. I did throw some Bible verses in that week, but for the most part, we threw out the cosmological argument and the fine-tuning argument and the moral argument and the personal experience argument to try to make a case that it is very possible that God does exist. Last week, Bob talked about the Bible, did a great job making a case why you should feel good about the Bible. Now, I want to address this morning this idea that the Bible contradicts itself or that the Bible's full of myths and mistakes. If you're still there and you still wrestle with that, the best chapter in a book that I can understand that has really answered that question is a book by Lee Strobel. It's in our library. It's The Case for Faith. And one of his eight chapters talks about the Bible. Please, if you are there and you're still struggling with this, please read that chapter. And if you don't have that chapter and you can't find that chapter, find me and I will get you that chapter. It is an excellent, excellent defense of the Bible and and why sometimes even what seemingly is a contradiction really isn't. So Lee Strobel, Case for Faith. This week we're tackling um, the question, why do Christians say that Jesus is God's Son? What's that all about? Tonight we're going to show a video at the end of the service. There is a special Q&A at Millican University featuring uh, Mark Middleberg and Dr. Rich Knopp. And uh, our bus is going to roll, so if you want to ride the bus, it's leaving at 5 o'clock. Kirkland, I think, has 1,900 seats, and I would love to fill most of them with uh, Christians and non-Christians from the 25 churches or from the community at large. So that's tonight from 6 to 8 p.m. Four reasons why Christians say that Jesus is the Son of God. And unlike two weeks ago, where I didn't really spend a lot of time in in our Bible, I unashamedly am going to make the case for you today from our Bible from the 66 books that we say make up our Bible. And and I'm doing that unapologetically, and I'm doing it for two reasons. Number one, if you're someone that, you're kind of with the people on the video. Jesus told some cool stories. I love that parable of the lost son, brings a tear every time, but I'm just not really buying the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to make a case for you why I have staked my life on this. And why so many of us have staked our life on this claim that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. Number two, if you are like me and you affirm, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you may not be able to tell others why you believe what you believe. Have you ever been there before? I believe something. I'm not really sure why I believe it. I'm not really sure I can defend why I believe it. I just believe it. I want to be able to equip you to defend your faith. So four reasons Christians say that Jesus is the Son of God. And reason number one is this. The Old Testament 
points us to a Savior Messiah from the Lord. The 39 books of the Old Testament, some people call them the Hebrew Scriptures, they, they have a common theme flowing throughout them. And that is that it's tough right now. Life is tough right now. You, you read in the Kings and the Chronicles, a lot of tough times. You read from the prophets, lots of tough times, but a better day is coming. And a better day is coming because the Lord is going to send a Savior. The Lord is going to send a Messiah. In the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, Abram, he would become Abraham, receives an unconditional covenant promise from the Lord. The Lord says to him, I'm going to make you a nation, I'm going to give you a land, and you're going to be a blessing. Nation, land, blessing. Genesis chapter 12. And the rest of, of the Old Testament points us to the fulfillment of that blessing. Christians believe ultimately in Jesus Christ. Now, it wasn't just in Genesis chapter 12 that we see this. We get into the time of Isaiah the prophet. You want to talk about tough times? It was tough times when Isaiah was ministering, when Isaiah was a prophet. The nations of Assyria and Babylon were causing major, major problems for God's people. And in the midst of tough times, we see encouraging words like this in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us. You flip over two chapters to Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What about Jeremiah? Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. I mean, he really struggled in public ministry. But in, in, in Jeremiah chapter 23, we see more encouraging words. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he'll be called the Lord our righteousness. Now, that's a nice Sunday morning scripture. You kind of nod politely, and that's great. You've got to realize, when Jeremiah is sharing this prophecy, God's people are being destroyed by the evil Assyrians, the evil Babylonians. Jerusalem is on a, a countdown. Jerusalem is about to be no more. And in the midst of this tough time, Jeremiah's saying, it's bad, but just wait. Better days are coming. What about Micah? Micah is one of those prophets. We're not even really sure where his book is. We know it's in there somewhere. What's his deal? He also ministered during the same period of time, tough times for God's people. And from Micah chapter 5, we get the prophecy that the Savior, the Messiah, will be born in Bethlehem. But a little bit later on verses 4 and 5 of chapter 5, he says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. The Savior, this Messiah, this hope will be their peace. And, and I can't share this without reading maybe the most famous of the prophecies about Jesus, Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, 
smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. First 39 books of your Bible point to hope. They point to a Savior. They point to a Messiah. And that's the first reason that Christians say, yes, Jesus was more than just a good teacher. Jesus was more than just a guy that told some cool stories. We believe he is the Son of God. Reason number two, the birth narrative of Jesus confirms this truth. Jesus is from God. And so it kind of felt like Christmas outside today. If you were out there, it was really cold, and you're putting sweatshirts on, and you're bundling up. But just imagine for a moment that it's Christmas Eve, and we've got Christmas Eve specials and worship and all of that. And you would probably expect to hear Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. And so I want to give you two different perspectives. The perspective of Joseph from the Gospel of Matthew, the perspective of Mary from the Gospel of Luke. Here, here is where they're coming at from this. Now, what's Joseph's story? Well, Joseph was a Sadiq. He was a righteous man. He, he did things like God fears we're supposed to do, and he had a problem. His fiancée, who he'd never been with, they'd never been sexually active, she's pregnant. Okay, and she's saying, look, trust me on this. God's the father. Just, just trust me on this. And, you know, most of us, we wouldn't be buying that. Joseph wasn't buying that. He says, you're out of here. I'm sending you packing. And, and, and the angel of the Lord comes to Matthew in a dream, and here's what he says to him. He says, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Why do Christians say that Jesus is the Son of God? Right here, Matthew chapter 1. What about Mary's perspective? Not only was Joseph worried about this pregnancy. Mary was worried about this pregnancy as well because she knows she hadn't been messing around. She knows that she had been a holy, upstanding, righteous person, and now she's pregnant, and she's been to biology class. She's been to health class. She's had the movies. She's seen all of that, and she knows she's not been down that road, and now I'm pregnant. So, so what, what's Mary's encouragement? Also from an angel, the angel Gabriel. He says, you're going to be with child. You're going to give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. In verse 35, it's huge. We skip verse 35 a lot of times. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Why do Christians say that Jesus is the Son of God? It's right here in the birth narrative. Matthew's perspective, or Joseph's perspective from the Gospel of Matthew. Mary's perspective from the Gospel of Luke. Reason number two, the birth narrative screams it. Reason number three, and I want you to grab a hold of this because this is important. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. I, I have an announcement that I want to make today, and it's going to stun some of you. So I, I, don't, I don't want you to get shocked or anything along these lines, but um, I am the President of the United States of America. Why, why are you laughing? I don't understand. No, no one's even standing up. What, what's going on here? Well, if I make a proclamation like that, what, what are you going to say? You're going to say he needs a sabbatical, right? You're going to say he needs a rest. Because I'm definitely not the president of the United States. There's no Secret Service guys with the little earpieces running around. I mean, I wouldn't be able to get this close to you if I was. I make a proclamation like that, and you say he's either crazy 
or he's just lying. And in that case, I was lying, and I know you're not supposed to lie in church, but just for the point of the illustration, I lied in church. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. The Son of God, that's a radical claim. That's a radical proclamation. And yet he said it. In John 3.16, maybe the most famous Bible verse of all, Jesus is having this encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a doubter. He's struggling with the faith. He's not sure what's happening with Jesus. He's locked into being a Pharisee and the religious leaders of the day and all of that. But Jesus, he's thinking there might be something there. And it's in this context that Jesus says, For God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's Jesus talking about himself. In your Bible, is it in red letters? It is, isn't it? You know why? Jesus is talking. Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. What about Matthew chapter 16? Matthew chapter 16 is a cool account because it's, Jesus, it's an account of Jesus' community group. Now, you didn't know that Jesus was in a community group, but Matthew chapter 16 is Jesus' community group. It's Jesus and his disciples. And the icebreaker question for Jesus' community group is a really good one. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they're saying, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, and others one of the other prophets. And then Jesus says, okay, that's good icebreaker stuff, but let's get to the meat of the, the lesson today. Who do you say that I am? And it's Peter that speaks up. Peter's the first one to speak up. We beat up on Peter a lot. And he deserves it some of the time, quite honestly. He was a real knucklehead at times in the Gospels. But right here, he gets it right. He says, you want to know who I think you are, Jesus? You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, 16. Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar because just a couple weeks ago, the the Lord girls stood up here and, and many weeks people stand up here and they say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. Peter's the first one to make the proclamation. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions have made the proclamation since. So what's the point? Well, if you said to me, Greg, I think you're the President of the United States, I would say to you, you need a rest. But, but I would also say, no, that's not the case. I'm not the president of the United States. I'm a preacher. I'm a preacher in Clinton, Illinois. I, I would right away try to stop that rumor. I wouldn't want that rumor to get to Facebook. I wouldn't want that rumor to get to Twitter because it would just be out of control. Secret Service would be showing up wondering what's wrong with me. I would stop that lie in its tracks. Did Jesus look at Peter and say, shut it up, no more? He didn't. What did he say? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's Peter. Because this wasn't revealed to you by man. You got this from God the Father in heaven. And then verses you know, 18, 19, don't even want to go there. Uh, very controversial verses. Uh, not, not even going down that road. But in verse 20, he did say, don't tell anybody this because my time's not yet come. But the point is this, Jesus had every opportunity with his community group, with his small group, with the people that he was closest with to say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not. 
I'm just a good teacher. I figured out how to do a couple miracles, but that's it. He didn't say that. He said, blessed are you because you're the first one to figure it out. Reason number three that Christians say that Jesus is the Son of God, because Jesus said he was the Son of God. Well, reason number one, Old Testament points to a Savior Messiah. Reason number two, the birth narrative screams Jesus as the Son of God. Reason number three, Jesus himself claimed that he was the Son of God. And reason number four, and I would consider this kind of the cherry on the top of the Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus confirms everything. Did you notice on our video that we watched, what was the real objection for many of the skeptics on that video? What was it? Resurrection, wasn't it? They said, good teacher, had a lot of good things to say, believe that he lived, believe that he died, believe that he was put in the tomb, but I just can't grab a hold of the resurrection. I, I just, I can't do it, they said on the video. And I don't want to beat up on the people on the video because we have people all around us that, that are saying the same thing. They're saying, a little bit of Jesus is okay, but this, this son of God stuff, I, I can't accept that. This raised raised from the dead? Are you kidding me? I just can't embrace it. I'm so thankful for the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You need to be familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is the most important chapter in the Bible on the resurrection. And Paul writes it to a messed up church in, in a hedonistic city. And says a lot of stuff. I mean, he's blasting them for this, and he's busting their chops for that, and then he's got the love chapter that we hear at weddings, and on and on and on and on, and he's about done, and he takes chapter 15, and he says, I'm going to give you what's most important. I'm going to give you what's numero uno, the most important thing. And here's what he says in verse 3. He says, I pass on to you what I received as of first importance. It's most important, and it's three things that Christ died for our sins, According to the scriptures, he was buried, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead, according to the scriptures. Paul's saying, you might be worried about all kinds of different things. What I want you to be focused on is what's most important. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. And I would say to you, whoever you are, if you've been a follower of Jesus your entire life, or you're trying to figure out who is Jesus, that's most important. And don't let anyone else tell you anything else. It's not the fact that, that Christians can be hypocrites, because we can be hypocrites. It's not the fact that the church is an imperfect place, because this church is imperfect, and every church on this earth is imperfect. It's not because someone has wronged you in some way along the lines. That's not what's most important. What's most important is that Jesus died, he was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. And, and if you don't believe me on that, let me go back to Paul and give you verse 17 of this chapter. He says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's meaningless. Throw it away. Get rid of it. You're still in your sins. And so reason four that Christians say that Jesus is the Son of God is because we believe that Jesus did die on the cross because I'm a sinner, because we are sinners, and that he was buried. He wasn't just thrown in the garbage dump 
It was called Gehenna. Like most people in the first century world who were crucified, that's what happened to them. Their bodies were just peeled off that cross and they were chucked in the garbage dump. But because of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus the Pharisee, Jesus was prepared for burial. And let me tell you, if you were alive and you were prepared for burial, you would die. You would not last two days in a tomb being embalmed. It wouldn't happen. And on the third day, Jesus rose again. And so my bottom line for you, for us today is this. I believe, and it's really not my thought, it's really C.S. Lewis's thought, there's really only three options when it comes to Jesus. I believe that anyone in this world really, if they're being fair, if they're being a person of integrity, they really only have three options when it comes to Jesus. Option one is that Jesus was a liar. He was a liar. What's that mean? That means the claims of Jesus were false, and he knew they were false. And so he was a liar. He was just lying to the people. Option number two is that Jesus was crazy. He was out of his mind. He was a lunatic. The claims of Jesus were false, but he didn't know that they were false. So he was walking around saying that he was the Son of God, and he thought he was the Son of God, but he really wasn't. That's option two. And then option three is that Jesus is Lord, that he is who he claimed to be. C.S. Lewis's classic work, in my opinion, his best work, is a book in our library as well called Mere Christianity. And uh, if you've not read Mere Christianity, please get a copy. I mean, you can get it for five bucks probably. It is just a classic, classic work from decades ago. And here's what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the kind of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who claims he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend this. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. Consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that Jesus was and is God. Liar, lunatic, or Lord, you must decide. Let's pray. God, thank you for today and for the opportunity to be in your word and to better understand what what your word says about Jesus. And I pray right now for for our church and the people of our church um, who proclaim that your son Jesus is the ultimate difference maker, that he is Savior, that he is Lord, that that he is your son. I, I pray that we will be able to better defend our faith better better understand our faith i also pray right now for those that are with us today that have never made a decision 
to accept your son Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I pray that you would um, allow them to really wrestle, maybe for the very first time, with what's keeping them from following Jesus, your son. Thank you for the hope that he brings. Thank you that he died on the cross because I'm a sinner, because we are sinners, that he was buried, and the third day he rose again. It's in your name that I pray this prayer. Amen. Well, every week uh, following the sermon, we sing a song or two. I think we're singing two today, is that right? And the second will lead us into communion. But um, during this time, if you would like someone to pray with you, I'd be honored to pray with you. I'd love to have that opportunity. Uh, If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I I will tell you, I made that decision when I was seven years old. I didn't know a lot at seven. I, I never have regretted that decision. It's the most important decision I ever made. And, and if you've never made that decision, just as, as a friend, I, I plea with you, don't, don't take this decision lightly. Don't take it flippantly. I'd love to talk with you today about what it means to be a Christ follower. And if today doesn't work, tomorrow, this week, I'm up front waiting for you as we stand and Samuel and the team leads us in our song of commitment. scripture I was wondering when that was going to happen um, and we see we have this choice to make of whether, whether or not to stand on Christ like Paul says if Christ was not raised from the dead our, our faith is useless and we need to just make that decision to stand on Christ that Christ is enough in our life that we might base our entire um, everything we are off of that that one thing or not so like Greg said if maybe the first time maybe this is, is the time you want to ask Jesus to come into your heart to